and welcome to episode 32 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your knowledgeable and lustrous host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Rides. We've got two more season three episodes for you. Episode 11, Over 50 Steel, and episode 12, Beautiful Screamer. Did I say we? I did, because one of these episodes is my favorite of the season, and that can only mean one thing. Yes, one of my absolute favorites, Mr. Daniel Budnick, will be joining me in the discussion of these episodes. Yes, I just got up like an hour ago, and now I'm recording. That's why my voice sounds so rough. It hasn't had time to properly warm up yet, but it was definitely fully warmed up during my chat with Dan. Now I will go ahead and forewarn everyone. We had some audio issues while we were recording, so the volume might be a bit wonky during this episode. Obviously, I've done the best I can to mitigate that in editing, but... There's only so much that I, a terrible, terrible producer, can do. Also, you will note that my house got incredibly loud during our discussion of Beautiful Screamer. We're talking slamming doors and loud talking and coughing and walking and somebody watching something at an incredible volume. It got ridiculous. So my apologies for the ambient noises being a little more loudly ambient in this episode. And of course, because Dan is here, we will be talking the endings. There will be spoilers. Please check the descriptions. I will timestamp those spoilers so you'll be able to avoid them if you haven't watched the episodes yet when you're listening to this. But please, watch the episodes. Then you won't have to worry about spoilers. With all of that said, let's not keep our guest waiting. Let's go to Hawaii. Yeah, this is McGarrett. What is it that can't be said to anyone but me? Uh, I wanted to report a robbery in progress. Uh, Cam's jewelry... Uh, sorry. Hiccups. Cam's jewelers. The jewelry mark. The, the corner of South and Curtis. Yeah, go on. Go on? Isn't that enough? Well, you said in progress. How do you know? Who is this, anyway? Why, the thief, of course. Season 3, Episode 11, Over 50, Steel. Air date, November 25th, 1970. Directed by Bob Sweeney, this is his first of five episodes. And written by E. Arthur Keene, this is his first of six episodes. A wealthy-looking man persuades the owner of a jewelry store to allow him to make a purchase just after closing. He instead proceeds to very politely lock the owner and the staff in the storeroom with coffee and cards before robbing the place of thousands of dollars worth of diamonds. As he removes his disguise, the man calls Steve McGarrett personally to report the crime and himself the thief. Fivo works to process the scene with Kono and Danny taking witness statements and Che Fong looking for forensic clues. The thief left behind several items, including a pair of binoculars set up at a window. The thief calls Steve from a nearby payphone and instructs him to look through the binoculars. Steve sees the thief in the phone booth, but his face is obscured by a clear plastic mask with fluffy red eyebrows and a mustache. He informs Steve that he has two more jobs scheduled and then he'll retire. He also tells Steve that he left him something under the desk. It's a go-directly-to-jail card from a Monopoly game. 
Steve asks Chin to check the computer for similar robberies going back a few years while Che Fong processes the little evidence he's managed to collect, including one thumbprint on the binoculars. At the lab, Che tells Steve that the serial numbers on the binoculars and tripod have been sloppily altered, but they can be traced. Steve receives a special delivery. He carefully opens the package to reveal a small box containing yet another Monopoly card, bank error, and several thousand dollars worth of the stolen diamonds, but not all of them. Che points out that the package was sent to Steve at the lab. He knew he'd be there. While Danny goes cross-eyed trying to decipher the printout of all of the robberies fitting the M.O., small jobs in groups of three that progressively got larger, all commercial businesses that were insured, Chin comes back with information about the items left behind at the jewelry store. They were all purchased with money orders signed by members of 5.0, including Jenny. And that thumbprint? Konos. An obvious transfer job. One thing about this thief, he's smart and he's got a sense of humor. Jenny then bursts in to inform them that the Monopoly thief is at it again. At the scene, an elderly jeweler explains to Steve that a thousand dollars worth of tanzanite was taken. He then excuses himself to another room, claiming to feel sick. He is, in fact, our thief, and the real staff is locked in the vault, to which he affixes his Monopoly trademark, Go Directly to Jail card. He does a costume change, donning the uniform of a police officer and ducking out another door just before Steve breaks in and realizes they've been had. Out in the hallway, Steve actually asks our thief if he's seen anyone, and the thief misdirects him, Chin, and another officer. Outside, Danny asks the thief, dressed as an officer, to tell a driver to move his truck. When he doesn't, Danny chases after him and sees him drive away, giving him a wave. Danny hops in his car and gives chase, but the thief eludes him, leaving only his car behind. Che goes over the car and finds feathers, animal hair, pollen, wheat chaff, some dirt, and the outside has evidence of soot. Fivo uses this to attempt to get an idea of where this car has been as a way to narrow down where their thief might be. Psychologist Dr. Emerson arrives. Steve is hoping that a profile on their thief might help them figure out who he is. The doctor says that the man acts like a guy who's been kicked around all his life, and now he's the one doing the kicking. He's labeling every crime, so there's no mistake about who is responsible. Our thief ends up heisting a bank delivery just after it's been delivered, impersonating one of the security guards who delivered it. It's all caught on a security camera, the footage of which is viewed by Steve, Danny, Jin, and the governor. At the end, the thief goes up to the camera and shoots it with a water pistol. Show over. Chin provides them with a possible suspect, Louis Avery Filer. A former insurance investigator, he disappeared a couple of years prior, leaving behind $19,000 in ICU bills from his wife, who unfortunately ended up dying of her heart condition. He paid the bill in full that morning, and one of the $50 bills was a hot one from the bank robbery. The zinger? He overpaid by $50. Once again, he's announcing his presence. It turns out that every place Filer robbed has some sort of affiliation with MPI, the company that merged with the small insurance office he worked for and ended up pushing him out of a job. The governor decides that due to the recent press about the case, it would be for the best to hold a press conference in an attempt to get control of the narrative and that an MPI representative should be present. Steve isn't keen on the idea, but goes along with it. At the press conference, Steve insists that Filer's name be kept off the record and takes great pains not to mention him. 
However, that proves to be unnecessary since Lewis Avery Filer himself attends. He's endured Gavin McLeod in a prison shower, Martin Sheen with a mustache, and Tom Skerritt without one. An author and prolific podcaster, he's the one, the only, the majestic and noteworthy Daniel Budnick. How are you, Dan? I'm doing all right, Kristen. What's what's happening over there? Uh, nothing worth mentioning. <laughs> <laughs> but we're about to talk 5-0, so that's hooray! Yeah, this is the highlight of our day. Oh. Is is talking about five zero? Yes, I'm glad. I'm so glad. I can't. How many seasons were there? Was it eleven or twelve? Twelve. Twelve. Okay. So you'll wait. be back multiple times. I cannot wait until we get to see. And we're we're old and we're creaky and they gotta they gotta t- we gotta uh, hit the thing on Audacity to take the wobble out of our voices because season twelve was <laughs> so great. <laughs> And we're taking potty breaks every five minutes. I just gotta let me. Yeah, I can't wait. Hopefully, by then we're in the same retirement home. Oh, that would be It'll fantastic. make it easier. That would be fantastic. Think of the shenanigans. Oh yeah, we will be the the staff's worst two <laughs> inmates. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. <sighs> um, before I ask you about this episode over fifty steel. I just want to let you know that this is my favorite episode of the season. Whoa. And if you put a gun to my head and forced me to choose, I would probably say this episode is my favorite of the entire series. So with that in mind, what? tread lightly when you give your opinions. I mean, what do you think of this particular episode? I, I thought it was fantastic. I um, I figured 5.0 would do episodes like this where um, it's... It's 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 a legitimately amusing and sometimes funny episode. Um, now maybe the music is too amused, but because um, the um, the music does a lot of wah, 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 kind of thing, which is fine. It can it, the music can. I'm, I'm sure it was the the guy who probably composed every episode was like, oh finally I can do some goofy shtick. Oh fantastic! But overall, I just think it's a fun it's a fun episode. It surprised me at how clever. It was. I mean, Hume Cronin's character is is just um, he's clever, and I and I really like it from the from the moment he shows up, and he walks in the room, and he says to everyone in the jewelry place, "Does anyone have to go to the bathroom?" And they all look at him like, "What a nut!" And and you realize, well, you know, he's he's got reasoning behind that, and then he he leaves them cards because they're locked in the storeroom for an hour, and and he's always one step ahead, and he's got well, he's doing um, I, I imagine the old shaky guy he pretends to be in that one scene. That's what we'll be like when we're doing the final <laughs> episode together. And his hand is shaking, and he's going like this, and then at one point he's like, "I've got to be sick," and then he runs in the other room, um. Well, I mean, it's 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 a fun episode. The, the joy of it is that um, his character. No, I'm sorry, I didn't write down his character's name like an idiot. I was just going to say him, Cronin, but what is Filer? F- it's Filer, Lewis Avery Filer. Filer, okay. The thing that's that's fun about Filer is that he he. He does seem to want to, in the end, maybe possibly humili- humiliate McGarrett in the five O a little bit, but there's never a real feeling of true threat. It's just fun, and and all the little things he does, and all all the little things he pulls off, and his um, ch- changing cars, and um, the his disguises, and when he goes up to the, I mean, I, I love the moment where he goes up to the security camera, pulls out a gun, points it at the camera, and it's a water pistol, 
Even the guys love it because they all laugh when they see it. And it's 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 a really nice mix of I, I think I think it's because he's such a clever thief. It's really fun to watch the five O team like sitting in front of maps and sitting with huge lists trying to figure out how they can catch him because they're clearly none of them are as clever as he is. But they do have all this information that they can access. And they can eventually get to him. I don't think I hope that wasn't a spoiler. Um, but they may or may not eventually get to him in the end. But um, it's it's just it's just it's such a it's it's a sharply written episode. It's very funny. Uh, Filer is such a fun character, and like McGarrett even gets into it. I mean, they have they have one really serious conversation together in his office, which is nice um, because it's sort of like them kind of dancing around, like, "What are you gonna do? What am I gonna do? What are you gonna do?" kind of thing. And then Filer goes off, and it's okay. Now we gotta catch him, or else it's all over. Um, it's just it's a it's a. This is actually an episode that I would think I could I could show to people. Well, not that I, you know, I'm embarrassed at previous episodes of Y Five O, but it's like if you had to pick one episode, I mean, from a show that was on so long, if you had to pick an episode, it, it's atypical, and I could, fi- I'm sure I could find another episode to follow it with, maybe the next episode, um, but it's it's a it's a fun, charming episode, and it's it's well put together, it's well structured, it's well written, and I I I, I have probably only seen about maybe 20 or so episodes of Hawaii Five O, but I would say this is probably the one I, I, when I got to the end I wanted to watch it again immediately because I thought it was so much fun and I thought maybe I missed a thing or two that first time but yeah, it's a, I mean this is legitimately this is super fun television and this is a fine episode of the show Yeah, and it, it is quite atypical in a lot of respects because we're not dealing with a typical bad guy who's an awful, awful person the bad guy in this is actually quite sympathetic when we find out part of his motivations behind the whole thing and he might be a thief and he might be a criminal but you like him you can't help but yeah. like him mm-hmm. because he's he's not a bad guy he's a lovable rogue he is artful dodger sort of thing yes he is, and it's really hard to dislike somebody who is so clever and is so clearly having so much fun doing yes. it. Yes, yeah. You know, he's just having the best time doing this. And I actually don't think that any of it's really personal or malicious mm-hmm. in any any way. The confrontation that he has with McGarrett at the press conference, which was such an ill-advised idea, and we will discuss yes, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, governor. Thank you, Governor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was it, that confrontation though is still it wasn't like him personally going after McGarrett that was all part of the ploy by mm-hmm. putting McGarrett in a corner so to speak and saying hey you need to either arrest me now or I'm going to get you for libel yeah it was his play to basically keep himself out of jail so even the the most aggressive or or confrontational he was still he you still liked him you were still kind of kind of on his side especially when you heard about what his motives were which we'll talk about Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean this is one of my this is my favorite episode of the season probably Mm -hmm. my favorite episode of the series because Mm -hmm. it is so atypical and it is so much fun and we get a lot of Che Fong yes. doing his forensics thing and helping mm-hmm. out the team, which is nice. I love Che. <laughs> so, you know, it is. It's 
it's not the typical episode. It's a nice break from all of the serious episodes. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's lighter, and I do... You you thought the music was a little much, but I I enjoyed it. I cause, Because it is so different from what we normally... The serious music mm-hmm. that we normally get. So yeah, I, I think I, I think since I haven't watched as many as you, I um when there there was and the thing was I didn't really notice until about halfway in. I think I, I was kind of sitting there and um, uh, all of a sudden I thought, oh, this is particularly jaunty, and uh, huh, yes, I think it was probably a point when he was running into a car or something like that, and it was like bump, 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 kind of. Well, that's actually making sounds yeah, like Beverly Hills or something, music. but yeah, yeah, sort of like that. The- the getaway music in that scene with mm-hmm. when he's running from Danny. Yeah, that's um, it's you know I'm I'm I I don't I don't mean to nitpick at it. I'm I I I feel like probably in the in the space of the series you're hearing that music and you're having fun with it too. It's like it's like uh when you got to the end of season two of the X Files that did the episode Humbug, and suddenly it was a it was a it was a dark episode but it was filled with comedy and there was some silliness in it and stuff like that. So it must have and it was a relief. After after so many dark episodes and, and all sorts of things happening, and I would imagine something something like this with, with this episode, where it's like just the way it starts with Hume Cronin with his big fake white beard on, and his very he's got he's got everything figured out in that jewelry room down to like the he's got the binoculars set up, and I just just go to your left to the binoculars. Don't worry, the cord will reach, and then I left you a little gift under you know, and it's just it's just good. I think it's just good. <laughs> It is. It it is. It's just good. If we go through just a little bit, yeah. looking at his his crimes. So the very first crime, it's at like a diamond exchange or something, mm-hmm. a jewelry store, and he comes right at five o'clock. Which I wouldn't even open the door. I don't care how much money you have. I <laughs> yeah. I want to leave. I'm in customer service. We hate it when you come at the last minute. Please yeah, understand that. That's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. So he manages to get in, and he's of course we don't realize he's in disguise at first. Mm-hmm. We don't realize that there's anything out of the ordinary until he asks everyone if they need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and the guy, the owner or the manager or whatever, actually like discreetly leans forward to see if he's been drinking, <laughs> like he like smells him, <laughs> which I thought was a nice touch. Mm-hmm, yeah. And then he proceeds to, and he apologizes for drawing the gun because he goes, otherwise people don't take me seriously. Yeah. And then proceeds to lock them in the storeroom with a tape recording that explains that there's cards and coffee mm-hmm. in the in the bag Two and that they should have each. time yes. for a rubber of bridge. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> and then he he goes out and he calls McGarrett as he's peeling off his disguise mm-hmm. and to alert him of this robbery and says, "Oh yes, by the way, you know he's like who's calling?" And he's like, "Oh, it's the thief." And he hangs up. And I'm like, <laughs> the absolute audacity! Yes. I love this man. Yes, this is beautiful and then you know somewhere in that 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 bag he carries around he has that big fun mask that he's wearing when he calls McGarrett later yes. on and he's just uh, did you get did you get false face vibes I from got that yes mask? I yeah I got a bit of false face yep yep yes. that, was, that was exactly yeah because that that was a Batman reference yeah. um <laughs> the, but the that mask has some serial killer vibes as well yes. because it's got big fuzzy red eyebrows and a big fuzzy red mustache and I'm like I could see a horror franchise built around how, that mask. How could that? Because that is kind of disturbing. Yeah that that would do nothing but scare people. I hope that wasn't you know uh, marketed as like a fun clown mask for the kids or something like that because those kids it, it, <laughs> are in trouble. It was 1970 so I'm guessing True. it was. Yes. 
And, I mean, we were wearing, you know, into the 80s, those uh-huh. plastic masks with the eye holes. Oh, oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah, the uh, Ben Cooper. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. You'd put your, you'd, and there was like a little square for your mouth, and you put your tongue in that, and it would get cut on the edges yep. of the thing. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Those were good times. Yeah, yeah. And it was great because if you get, some of them, it would have like, you'd get one that say like the Hulk, and on the, on the, the front of the costume, it would say like, the Incredible Hulk, just in case someone didn't know. From looking at your giant green face, that you were the Hulk, the Incredible Hulk. Were you Herman yeah, Munster? You, no, I'm the Hulk. Come y- on. Yeah, you didn't want him to confuse you with Frankenstein. Yes, exactly. So, there you go. And he does. He does the great thing too, where he he steps away from the phone booth when he knows McGarrett is still looking at him, and he kind of looks up and he reaches for his mask and he begins to remove it, and then right when he removes it enough, he's turned his face enough so you can't see his face anymore, but the mask is kind of being held up a little, yeah. so it's like he knows exactly. What's up? It's such a beautiful taunt. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, from the beginning with the first robbery, you know this is going to be different. But when he does that, you're like, oh, they are going to cat and mouse it throughout the entire episode. Yes. They're yes. going to have to try to catch mm-hmm. this guy. And that makes it, that's part of what makes it so much fun is that they are cat and, and mousing with him and he, the entire time. Danny Williams bought Danny the tape Williams recorder. Bought the tape recorder. Tripod picked up a Tripod one Steve McGarrett. Steve McGarrett. Stop with the joke. Stop with the joke. Hold it. Go ahead, Jen. How did you trade? No hardship. No hardship. We all bought by money orders. Money orders with our Money orders with our names. Every small item to write back into us. Even implicated Jenny. Even implicated Jenny. You know the print on the lens? You know the print on the lens? Skunos. Transport of something you handled. Transport of something you handled. Kono, you're under arrest. you're under arrest. And he does that great thing with the um, all the stuff that he leaves at the scene when they go to try to track down. Uh, oh my gosh! <laughs> yes. Who bought everything? And it's like uh, they were all bought by the team, the members of the Five O. And it's like yes. he used all their names to buy everything, which I thought was a beautiful touch. Oh yeah, uh, it's particularly that he even implicated Jenny, the yes. receptionist. Yes, that's right. Yeah, everyone. <laughs> and he did that thing too, where he had the um, where they're looking at the forensic stuff, where he has like the package with the diamonds delivered to McGarrett when he's out there and yes. he's like he's like for a second you almost think like is he like got a time machine is he like hopping around like doing all this stuff and he's very good well when you when you watch that scene too and then you realize well he was he knew that they would be at the lab which is logical because he's going through all of the Che's going through all of the evidence because they tracked everything down by serial numbers. I don't think you can do that today, necessarily, but that's back in the day. You were able to get the serial number off your Binox and (laughs) track it to the store that it was bought from. And they've all been altered very sloppily, so they know he was. But then that stuff's delivered, and then Che Fong points out that he had it delivered to the lab. And for a minute, you were like, was it the delivery guy? Was he in disguise as the delivery man? I just I did like that touch. Also, the Monopoly cards. He leaves Those Monopoly great, yeah. cards mm-hmm. everywhere, mm-hmm. and well, at his crimes. I shouldn't say he just scatters them about like confetti. But <laughs> so he he hides one at the desk at the jewelers, mm-hmm. and it says go directly to jail. Mm-hmm. When he delivers the leftover diamonds that he sends back, it's a bank error mm-hmm. card. Mm-hmm. And at the next crime, he has the go to jail card. Mm-hmm. And the next crime is him stealing tanzanite and the thing is is that he that he calls jenny and or somebody calls jenny and says that he's still inside Mm -hmm. so they go rushing over there 
and that he's the old man. You don't yeah. realize at first that no, he's the old no. guy. Like it's not apparent. And he's talking about how the thieves stole like thousands of dollars of tanzanite, which mm-hmm. had only recently been discovered. So that's something I didn't yeah. know. Thank you, Hawaii Five O. Yeah, we're learning. I, I, we're I, learning. I, I like that. I like when he's the the old guy. Well, it's, it's, you're thinking Hume Cronin. He was always the old guy. No, don't be rude. <laughs> don't be rude. Um, but but it's it's great because when you see him at first. The focus is kind of on McGarrett as he comes in, and the guy's just reading information. But then the camera kind of lingers on the guy for a bit. And after a few seconds, you're like, oh, is that? Oh, you, you Dickens, what are you up to right there, you little stinker? And then it's like, and it's funny because McGarrett, I think, for at one moment, kind of looks at him like, what's going on here? <laughs> Who are you? But, but it also is mixed with a bit of, how did I get saddled with this guy? <laughs> where did this guy yes. come from? The look on McGarrett's face because he's going through this paper and he's slow and he's shaky and he's doing it at his own old man pace. And mm. Steve is like, "We we're on a clock here. We have things to do. Could you? Could you?" But he doesn't say anything. But you can yes. just see it on the look on his face, like, "Oh my god!" And that's what that's kind of what starts really tipping you off. Is like, okay, that this guy's totally messing with him. And then he yes. excuses himself. Because he feels like he's going to be sick, which Steve totally buys. Goes in the other room, locks the door, tells the people, the actual staff that are locked in the vault, mm-hmm. that uh, it won't be long now, children. <laughs> <laughs> then strips off his disguise and becomes a policeman. Yes. Leaves the card, runs out the back door. Oh, and there's a, there's a great shot where, um, like, McGarrett is, it's a hallway, and there are, like, two cops in the middle of the hallway, like, um, halfway down the hallway. And McGarrett kind of runs up to him. And as he's talking to him, I want to say an elevator opens, but I, I forget exactly where he comes from. But all of a sudden, like, Filer comes out be, behind them and begins walking up to them. And he passes by all three of them as he's talking. And you don't know who it is until he gets really close to the camera. And he's almost smiling at the camera as he kind of gets up close to the camera and then goes by the camera. And you're like, oh, he zinged him again. Ouch. Yeah, because Steve asked him, he goes, did you see an old man come out here? Because he, like, comes around a corner or something. He's like, did you see an old man? Mm -hmm. And he goes, oh, yeah, he went that way, but Mm -hmm. keeps walking. And so Chin and Steve and, uh, I think it was Officer Kimo, went running in different Mm -hmm. directions. Yes. And then he gets outside, and Danny stops him, and you think, oh, finally, somebody's going (laughs) to nail him. And he thinks, Danny thinks he's another officer, and he tells him to move this he calls it a truck it was a van, van anyway yeah, yeah. but says you know it has to have help this guy move this van and then he's like yeah okay and as soon as danny turns his back he starts walking away not to do that <laughs> danny catches him mm-hmm. and like there's this split second delay of what's going on and so he chases he runs after the guy watches him get into a car mm-hmm. and as filer leaves as he drives away, he waves at Danny, yeah. like toodles, and takes off. And that, and then you can see the realization on Danny's face, like, "Oh my God, that's the guy!" And takes off. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you know, have this very brief car chase mm-hmm. in which Filer ditches his car and goes off on foot. So Danny loses him, but they get the car, mm-hmm. which turns out to be a huge thing. <laughs> But first, they have Chafon go over with the forensics, and they mm-hmm. find all of this, like, animal f- hair and f- flamingo feathers, yes. and there's pollen and soot. So now they're doing the old school. Like, if they had Google, it probably wouldn't have taken this long, but they have this old school map 
and they're checking the odometer, seeing what the yes. distance was and where they might find all of these things, trying to figure out where Filer's been and all of this stuff, trying to narrow down anything they can about mm-hmm. this guy because they don't know who he is. And it's a brilliant bit of police work for 1970 mm-hmm. and to show them how much work it takes just to find this one guy. Yeah. But um, it's also pretty amusing for the rest of us to watch yes. them yeah. kind of Muppet flail through this, trying yeah. to figure this out. <laughs> and I like, too, when, when they first mention the, um, all the animal stuff and the bird stuff, it, it almost sounds like that's another um, trick. Like that's that's something to lead them off in another direction. And technically, in the end, it's not. But it seems almost like they're he's throwing in these random things where it's like, oh, that can't be right. Soot and the the flamingo, the 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 feathers and everything. This just seems like it seems like he's goofing with us. You know, it's it's like he he could have put a you know a banana split in there or something like that. I don't know. Just just to just to make us go, oh, he's at the you know the pink flamingo ice cream bar or something. I don't know. But um, I mean, Garrett gets into this uh, the same. It really gets into the spirit of it when he's talking to Philo later on. That you never know, like. If if what Filer is 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 some of the clues he leaves and things like that, whether they're they're whether he's trying to trick you, he's playing a game, or it's an actual clue that's going to lead you somewhere. And in the end, um, McGarrett begins to do that, like um, you know, when Filer says, "Well, I just I just have to ditch, the, ditch that car you got trailing me," and and McGarrett says, "Like, yeah, just make sure though that's the real car that's trailing you, and that we don't have another one that's trailing you. Just keep an eye." And it's it's um. The whole episode is almost like the end of an episode of like Poirot or something, you know, or the like a John Dixon car novel where you'll get like 30 pages or like 20 minutes of like Poirot explaining this incredibly elaborate murder. And and it's so amazing to hear it, and you think, how the hell did he figure it out? But he did, because he's Poirot. You know, and other detectives do it, too, in movies. And you get this incredibly complex, beautifully put-together, detailed bit of shtick. And the joy of this episode is this is like watching 50 minutes of that in sort of real time. And, you you know, there's no detective at the end saying, well, well, how did he get in and do this? Or or how did he get from being the old man into being the cop in the car? We get to see everything happening. And there's just something about it that's it's, it's especially sort of, well, this would get more so as the 70s went along, we got in the 80s. But especially as a, a lot of times you don't see stuff kind of with this level of inventiveness on TV because they're doing so many episodes a year you know it's almost like we've got a certain amount of inventiveness and imagination we put into each episode and this one just has more of it like whoever wrote it who wrote this one it it just feels like they had they were on fire it was um e arthur keen and this is his first of six episodes for the series he actually also a little bit of trivia wrote the sequel to this episode, uh, Filer comes oh. back in a later season, and he I was hoping I was well. I was hoping you would have. Yeah, that yeah. Uh, that episode is pretty good. I don't think it's as good as mm. this one, but it does feature. Not to spoil things too much, um, by the time we get to it, maybe you'll have forgotten. It does feature <laughs> Filer in drag at one point. He's nice. in a he's in a yes. female uh, disguise, which is actually pretty hilarious. <laughs> so. Yeah, so Filer does come back, and it's the same writer who okay. does it. All right, good, good, good. Yeah, because I mean, it's it's. I, I don't want. I don't want to over oversell it. Well, I'm not the one overselling it. You said it was your favorite episode, possibly. So I think that's 
Come on, everybody. Get on board. Watch this one. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is great. Especially because after the third robbery, which is at the, the bank? It was a bank delivery. And yes. he literally, like the guys drop off the money and leave. And he comes back and she thinks he's one of the drivers who forgot something. And mm. he's like, oh, no, I'm just here for some money. And then, of course, it's all caught on security camera, and he shoots it with a water pistol, and the governor and Steve and Danny and Jim find it very, very amusing. But what's great about that is, so we have that little robbery, and then Jin drops this, this bomb on us that he knows who this probably is. Because they did get a psychiatrist with an excellent mustache come in to try oh. to do a profile because they had no idea who this might be. And he says, well, it's obviously somebody who's been kicked around all of his life. And now he's kicking back and he's yes. making sure everybody knows who's doing this. I think more like identity. He has to label every crime. Why? So no one else gets the credit? That's about it. That is kind of what happens when Chin comes in with Lewis Avery Filer's picture and says that he worked for this insurance, he was an insurance investigator, and he worked for this company. He got uh, let go because he the company merged with another company, MPI, and he was over 50. So, while well, you're old and useless, especially in 1970s, so they got rid of him. And then he disappeared owing like $19,000 in hospital bills because yeah. his wife had been sick and she eventually succumbed to a heart condition. She died. And he had paid it in full that morning. Mm -hmm. And one of the bills that yes. he used, one $50 bill he used, was hot from that bank robbery. Mm -hmm. But he precisely overpaid by $50. <laughs> so he was literally saying, here I am. This yeah. is me. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. The audacity. Uh, <laughs> I've never seen audacity done so That's well. Fun. And it's great because the, the way it's described, you're like... Oh, so he's going to be, f and because someone says, "Well, then he's fifty dollars short on that bill," and then I, th I think it's, I think it's Chin Ho says, "No, no, um, he actually there was an extra fifty dollars in there." And I was like, "Nice, <laughs> this guy's having a good time." I almost, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, um, I, uh, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but I kind of wish the episode had ended with him on like a boat, you know, just waving to everyone and going off into the distance. I would have. Yeah. I, I, that would have kind of been a sweet ending. But I don't. I don't. Were they allowed to do that back then? I know there was a certain time where you weren't allowed to show like crime does pay. Yeah, because they could sometimes. I mean, if you think about it, they did it with Wolfat all the time. Wolfat oh, always true. got away. Yeah, true, yeah. Now his plans were often spoiled, but he was still committing crimes, yeah. so he still could have gone to jail. Yeah, like Doctor so, Doom but, always getting caught in the, uh, not getting caught in the Fantastic Four comics kind of thing. Yeah. Right. And that would have been a, an ending that I don't think anybody would have been too disappointed in because Filer was so likable. And once you found out that the motives for all of his crimes were basically revenge. He yes. Was, because he only robbed places that were insured by this company. So yeah. they would have to pay out on the losses. Yeah. So he was getting his revenge on this company for firing him. Mm -hmm. By making them pay, basically making him pay them pay yes. for yeah, the, like, his wife's hospital bills. Yeah, it was like MPI or something was the name of the company. Yeah, and, and there's like at the um, at the uh, press conference, there's a guy from MPI there, and like every sixth word he said, well, it's not a word, but every sixth thing he says is MPI. 
It's like, well, MPI did this. So he was working, and MPI did this. And then we an MPI, and MPI, you just said, oh, shove it. Would you yeah. please? You just, just give it a little break, Mr. MPI. And then you realize, oh, I'd be stealing from you, too, if I was that smart. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. This is you're not making a case for me to to be um, against this guy. I'm on his side currently. Yes, and I actually the one thing I thought was going to happen was I thought more was going to come up about his. I thought it was going to be something like something more with his wife. I thought that was unless I missed it. But I know she she was in the hospital. She the hospital bills. But I thought like I kind of thought like the way he was picking on McGarrett, something might like maybe you know the. My wife had a heart attack, and we were rushing to the hospital. And someone in the five O stopped the car and delayed us. And you know, she was her heart was irreparably damaged in the time we had to sit there, or something like that. I thought that was going to be now. That would have probably been maybe a little too dark for the episode. But I thought that was going to the 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 why his wife was in the hospital was going to and why the bills were so high. I mean, obviously it was because he lost the job and everything, but I thought that was going to be a little more, um, that maybe that's more of a modern sort of thing, but I thought that was going to be more of a focus on why he was doing it. In the end, he's doing it to pay the bills and then to make his retirement money so he can go. Where are you going to go? I mean, if you're in Hawaii and you've got to leave Hawaii, where do you go? Wake Island? Well, if, where Where do you, where, <laughs> we're going to Midway. You go to Maui. You, you go, go from Maui. Oahu to Maui. <laughs> okay, so I was gonna, yeah, because I was gonna say, you know, it's like you, you know, you're you're leaving the mainland, and we're gonna escape the mainland and go to Hawaii or something like that. But if you're in Hawaii, where do you, you Australia? Go, you go, you go back to the mainland. I guess you or do. <laughs> Singapore. Singapore was quite popular back okay. then. Singapore in the Philippines. So well, maybe right. not so much the Philippines, but I know Singapore was. There was actually an episode set in the Sing- in Singapore. So okay, probably there. Can you back up that charge? Picture's no proof. What have you really got, McGarrett? What charge? I'm not making any charge. Not yet, anyway. What I'm saying is that all I think is that we have found our man, gentlemen. Sounds like double talk, McGarrett. Would you mind coming forward and identifying yourself, please? Certainly. press conference the governor insists on doing this press conference once they figure out it's filer and it's their way of getting ahead or the governor's way of getting ahead of the media because the media has been skewering mcgarrett about this and Mm -hmm. that's actually a common theme throughout the series is that the media gives mcgarrett a really hard time especially if it's there's any sign of him failing in any capacity and so they have this incredibly ill-advised press conference in which they say we can't mention this guy's name and the MPI dude within 30 seconds mentions him by name. Yes. And McGarrett's like, okay, that's strictly off the record, guys. Mm-hmm. He then proceeds to do a photo demonstration of how similar Filer looks to the deconstructed disguise picture that they got from the bank robbery. Yes. You know, if we give him, because he was supposed to be um, mimicking an Asian man. So mm-hmm. they're like, if we give him Caucasian eyes, and I put that in quotes, um, <laughs> and take away the mustache and this, it, it, there's a mar- remarkable resemblance. Now, Steve goes to great lengths not to mention Filer's name, mm-hmm. 
but he's literally standing up there with a friggin' picture of him yes. saying, this looks really similar. I think yeah. all I'm saying is I think we have our man. And yeah. it's like, what the hell? This is like <laughs> the worst press conference I've seen. And so when Filer comes out and he's like, you you better back this up with charges or I'm going to sue you personally for libel. I'm like, yes, do it. Yeah. This is terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It yeah, was bad. Because the way he sort of, he puts the picture on the um, the easel or, or whatever it is, and then they start to do the thing with the, the picture from the security camera and it begins to flop the the second one, the third one, the fourth one. And it's, it's you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, we, we don't want to mention his name, but here's a picture of a guy I got. Wink, wink. And I'm going to put it here. Look at how much this guy looks like this guy. Wink, wink. And it's just okay, McCarran. Maybe, um, uh, I know you got to do what the governor says, I guess, but um, maybe not. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there was a hundred ways this press conference could, could go. Could have gone. Yeah. And this was the worst. <laughs> Besides saying you standing up there and basically saying Lewis Avery Filer totally did it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this was just like that was one hundred. This was ninety nine. Yeah. <laughs> There, and there, there's even one point where um, the MPI guy is talking, and they're talking about the monopoly thief or whatever. And then Filer keeps coming up. McGarrett keeps saying, "Don't, don't bring him up." And then one of the guys, one of the reporters, is like, "Okay, now I'm confused. What's going on?" And he says, "We got this. We got this. And we got this. And we got this. What's happening?" And um, and then right after that is when Filer begins to yell, and it's it's nicely done because there's at least one shot where you hear. Filer yelling, but you can't see who it is, and you're like, "Where's that? What's going on? Where's that? you know he's he's hiding in the back, but he's um he's good is Filer, and I, now I want to see that second episode he was in. Uh, sequels are generally never as good, but I as I was watching this episode, I thought this feels like something that would have a sequel to it, and I bet the sequel wouldn't be quite as good, but it would be charming, but not as it's- sharp. Yeah, it's not quite as sharp. It's still a whole lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And you're you're happy to see Filer back. But yeah, it's not quite as good, not quite as clever. Mm-hmm. But like I said, still, it's, Filer is still very much Filer. So there's still a lot of disguises and there's still a lot of audacity and he's still playing the game. And I think part of that is because why the audience would want Filer to come back is because he's so much fun. But then... I think with Steve because like I said I don't sense that this was there was anything specific or malicious about him threatening to sue Steve for libel or anything like that mm-hmm. making the scene at the press conference because that was strategic that was yeah. forcing Steve's hand mm-hmm. and that was his way of keeping himself out of jail which is smart and then you see that whole scene in the office where they're basically playing chess mm-hmm. And McGarrett's giving him a little bit of what they know, and Filer's basically saying hot or cold on on it, and kind of admitting to things, but not really admitting yeah. to things. Which I'm like, watch that line because yeah, if, if he's read if he's read you your rights, he's gonna use that against you. Mm-hmm. But then he does this thing where because they're talking about how they're looking for where Filer's bank is, which oh, is yes. where he's stashing mm-hmm. everything. And he's like, I can tell that you've just been to it because you've got dirt under your fingernails. And you, and he has dirt on his shoe. And Steve snatches his shoe yeah. off his foot and, does and a scrapes, scrapes some of the dirt. And I'm like, I'm not sure how legal that is. <laughs> 
Yeah. But it was hilarious. And the look on Filer's face was like, oh shit, I missed a step here. I was not anticipating that sort of aggression. So that was fun because in that, Hume Cronin is just such a brilliant actor. I mean, he's clearly having a great time with this role. But there are moments in that scene where you can see his bravado kind of falter just a little bit because Steve's hitting just a little too close Mm -hmm. to home and he's getting a little too uncomfortable. And it's just slightly in the expression on his Mm -hmm. face. He's just so brilliant. Yeah, because I I think he thought, and I think he's right, that McGarrett isn't as smart as him. But McGarrett is, is very tenacious and he's got all these people helping him. And he he the the way he sort of gets to the final uh, sort of not not clue he get, he gets the final sort of little revelation that leads him to figure out exactly where the the bank is 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 kind of one of those where they're all sitting around and then he's suddenly like oh my gosh you know the the O Henry case I forget what it is or something like that and and I think Chin Ho is like oh my gosh yeah and they both go out to the car. And they do the thing with the odometer. So it's just, um, yeah, I don't think McGarrett is as, as clever as, as Filer is. But he also has the entirety of the 5-0 working for him, which helps. And and there's and I, I think some of the moments with Filer's face kind of, just kind of for split seconds losing the bravado is, is really just being like, okay, you're a little sharper than I thought. Okay, and now you've got my shoe. Okay, <laughs> yeah. All right. And... I did think, however, there was because he said he says, um, even if I drew you a map, you'd never be able to find my bank. And uh, technically, um, it's it's not that I, I I was hoping that would be something where his his bank was located would be something like someplace like really strange. I don't even like up a tree or something. I don't know, just someplace really really weird. It's in an odd spot, but it sort of makes sense in the end with um with what we've gleaned from the clues but when he says even if I, even if i gave you a map you'd never find it i i really truly believe that he was saying telling the truth like even if they went to the point on the map they'd be like what where are we what's going on and maybe that would have been true where they sent well i guess they would have had to they in the end they yeah okay well maybe he's right i don't know but i i really sort of thought like that like they go to a place where there was like a a floating island or so you know just something really weird and it was like oh i i i don't really know what i'm saying when i'm saying this right here but just the even if i gave you a map you wouldn't be able to find it is an, is an intriguing line that i guess is right in the end but i like i like that even even at that point he's still throwing out these little little things that are like just a little strange yeah i think it was it was laid out as like another little challenge and saying that you know i i am a little more clever than you are and i think also kind of teasing at the legality of it that you know you you have to obey the law in order to nab me but i don't have to do that yes so i think we're ready to to spoil this since you've already mentioned we've already talked a little bit about the bank so this is your spoiler alert if you have not watched the episode or you don't want to know how it ends please stop listening i will put timestamps in the the description so you can see when you may resume and listen safely but be warned spoilers be here now (laughs) rented getaway car Okay, so they finally figure out where the bank is because they have Chin Ho and Che Fong going through 
it's a map and a, a tourist guide mm-hmm. trying to find all of these things the the animal hair the flamingo feathers the pollen or something like that some sort of flower and bamboo and they finally find it but it's outside of what the odometer says the car had been mm-hmm. and that's when steve is like oh yes this one case where some jackass did some did a thing yes but it involved altering an odometer and they find out that filer did the exact same thing which you could argue is kind of like a deus ex machina type deal but for filer it would actually makes perfect sense that he would yes. be that Trixie. Mm-hmm. so they figure out where the bank is it's at an animal park meanwhile danny and kono have been sitting on filer kono's like he can't go anywhere but straight up and danny's like i'm i'm not gonna rule that out that's possible <laughs> They follow him, and they have, like, a whole system. I love it when they do tails, and they have, like, systems set up, so they switch off and stuff like that, and they kind of do that there. They watch him make, like, two different phone calls. He ends up snagging another car that can outrun them because he knows he's being followed, ditches it on the highway, so he's obviously been picked up by somebody else, so he completely loses them, but they know where they're going. Steve knows where he's going. And we watch Filer go to his bank. He dresses up as a guy from the water department. And he asks to use the cart. And it's a it's an animal park, so there are animals everywhere. There is a duck of some sort in the cart. Yes. And I love, yeah, absolutely yeah. love mm-hmm. this. He tips his hat to the duck. <laughs> and then gingerly removes it. So he may take the cart to his bank. And it's in a concealed area in mm. the wilderness of this park. that ha- It's a, like a manhole cover. For like yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And that's where his bank is, and he hears the helicopters searching, and he's like, mm, "They can't see me here." Mm-hmm. And then he hears a twig snap, and you look, and there is Steve McGarrett smiling <laughs> down on him, <laughs> and it is the most beautiful, perfect moment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, because uh, uh, Filer uh, you know, smiles back at him, and and McGarrett has the Monopoly card to give to him. Finally, <laughs> yes, it's, beautiful. It's, it's it's a nice moment. I think I think McGarrett says something like, you know, I had, you know, uh, what what is his? You, you got to remember, like time is on my side or something like that. I think he says, and it's uh, yes, it's a it's a nice moment because like like when the camera kind of moves slightly, like McGarrett is like right there, and how long you been there? Thirty eight seconds. It's like okay, yeah, there you go. It's a it's a nice they 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 do it well, and and like you said, the the odometer thing. I think possibly um, maybe in another episode may have seemed a bit like a, um, yeah, like a Deus Ex Machina, kind of like, eh, sort of thing. But that's perfect, uh, perfect filer. You know, and that's kind of like them figuring out something filer never would have expected them to figure out, which is, which is cool. Yeah, exactly. Filer's very clever and probably more ca- clever than the 5 team in a lot of respects. But they also have as Steve demonstrated, just a wealth of experience Mm -hmm. from dealing with criminals. And that kind of gives them the upper hand in in that situation. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it came together perfectly. And the fact that Filer, you know, got all the stuff out of the thing and just handed it to Steve and went (laughs) along. Yeah. It was just such a perfect ending because it really was. It was like the conclusion of a chess match in which... Filer thought he had checkmate, but it was only check. And Steve comes in with the yes. checkmate. Filer is 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 one step ahead the entire way, except for that one moment where they figure out the odometer thing, and it just takes one. 
It just takes that one thing to give the 5-0 gang the slight advantage where they can catch him. And that's one of those things. Like He left them plenty of things that they were supposed to discover. But that was one that they weren't. And that one thing led to him getting caught. Sorry, Mr. Filer. You were enjoyed. And we, we look forward to seeing you again real soon. Let's take a quick break from the chat to check in on our most excellent guest cast. Louis Avery Filer was played by Hume Cronin. This is his first of two episodes. He was Ben Marriott in Marriage, a 1954 short-lived series that only had eight episodes, but co-starred his wife, Jessica Tandy. He would also work with her in 13 movies. He turned up in episodes of Suspense, Climax, The Loretta Young Show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Barbara Stanwyck Show, and Naked City. He appeared in the movies Marvin's Room, The Pelican Brief, Cocoon, and Cocoon the Return, Batteries Not Included, which I saw in the theater, Brewster's Millions, The World According to Garp, Honky Tonk Freeway, There Was a Crooked Man, Hamlet, the 1964 version, Cleopatra, The Postman Always Rings Twice, Lifeboat, Phantom of the Opera, the 1943 version with Claude Rains, and Shadow of a Doubt. And he appeared in the TV movies, The Moon and Sixpence, 33 Hours in the Life of God, Day One, Age Old Friends, To Dance with the White Dog, Alone, 12 Angry Men, Foxfire, and Off Season. He was also in the miniseries Seasons of Love. Mr. K was played by Galen Cam. This is his third of 11 episodes. We also saw him in Sweet Terror and The Devil and Mr. Frog. Margie was played by Donna K. Benz. This is her second of three episodes. We also saw her in King Kamehameha Blues. Wally Emerson was played by John Hunt. This is his first of seven episodes. He has seven uncredited appearances in Lost in Space. He also has one stunt credit and one additional crew credit for the show. Mrs. Carey was played by Robin Claire Mann. She also appeared on The Brian Keith Show. Purston Franklin was played by Les Keeter. This is his first of nine episodes. He was a play-by-play announcer, a sideline reporter, and a ringside commentator. Emmett was played by Emmett Rose. He was also in an episode of Magnum P.I., and Driggs was played by Bob Jones. This is his second of three episodes. He was also in Tiger by the Tail. Our director, Bob Sweeney, in addition to five episodes of Hawaii Five-O, he also directed 80 episodes of The Andy Griffith Show, seven episodes of That Girl, five episodes of Accidental Family, seven episodes of The Doris Day Show, 17 episodes of Hogan's Heroes, four episodes of Private Benjamin, seven episodes of The Love Boat, four episodes of Dynasty, six episodes of At Ease, three episodes of Just Our Luck, nine episodes of Fantasy Island, four episodes of The Dukes of Hazard, four episodes of Trapper John M.D., three episodes of Shadow Chasers, and six episodes of It's a Living. He also is directing credits for the TV movies Oh Nurse, Return to Mayberry, and If It's Tuesday, It Still Must Be Belgium. He also has 36 acting credits, including playing Gilmore Cobb on My Favorite Husband, Oliver Munsey on Our Miss Brooks, Gilmore Box on The Box Brothers, and Fibber McGee on The Fibber McGee and Molly Show, which was based on the radio show, and Gilly Box on Brothers. Our writer, E. Arthur King, in addition to six episodes of Hawaii Five-0, including Odd Man Inn, which is the sequel to this episode, as I mentioned, 
He also has writing credits for five episodes of the FBI, three episodes of Judd for the Defense, three episodes of The New People, two episodes of Canon, two episodes of Police Woman, 11 episodes of Police Story, and two episodes of Heart of the City. He also has a writing credit for the movie Murph the Surf, and he has writing credits for the TV movies Mae West, A Killing Affair, and Crash, The Mystery of Flight 1501, and he has seven directing credits, including Police Woman, Police Story, and the CBS School Break special, Dead Wrong, The John Evans Story, which he also wrote. Like, like I said, it's it's a it's a super fun episode, and I, I don't know how many episodes they did like this on the on the show, but the, I I would hope they do like maybe a couple every season, but I could be way out of line by saying that. These the fun kind of episodes like this were actually pretty rare. They didn't do these. There's probably a handful throughout okay. the series, but they actually, when it comes to doing clever episodes, they did quite a few. Okay. So, but we didn't always get the lighter right. ones like this, which I appreciate very much. Yeah. It's a it's a great episode, and um, I'm excited to talk about the next one too, which isn't as funny. But um, no, you, know. <laughs> you want to talk about a gear shift? Yes, Ooh, we go will... from really light and Ooh. and fun to. Ooh. I'm sorry, Dano. Now you're crying your eyes out. Yep, pop culture whiplash right here, folks. Hold on, here we go. If you want to shout, please go right ahead. Good for the nerves. <laughs> Episode 12, Beautiful Screamer, air date December 2nd, 1970, directed by Anton Leder. This is his second of three episodes, and written by Stephen Candle. This is his first of four episodes. Out on the tennis courts, a woman named Linda works with a tennis instructor. In a hall not far away, a wedding rehearsal attended by Danny and his girlfriend Jane and her friends the Gregsons, Walter and Sally, is happening. Walter Gregson excuses himself to get more champagne. Instead, he heads out to the tennis courts where friend Linda is now alone. He strangles her to death before slipping back inside with a couple of glasses of champagne, toasting his wife, Danny, and Jane to love. Five-O is on the scene and Danny fills in Steve. The time of death is pretty close because they know when the instructor left and when the body was found. The cause is obviously strangulation. There's no tracks thanks to the crime scene being a tennis court and the killer apparently wore gloves. However, the killer did leave one big clue. Lines from a poem written in lipstick on the woman's thigh. Chin interviews the witnesses, including the Gregsons, who claim to have been there the whole time. Danny comforts Jane and then shifts into cop mode and asks her to tell him everything about Linda to help find her killer. 
The lines are from a poem by Lord Byron about a Christian slave who was unfaithful. This worries them because it implies that there could be more victims, and poor Chin still has 136 witnesses to go through. Jane shows up at the office to see Danny, who only then realizes he forgot about a lunch date. He apologizes, but Jane already knew he wouldn't be able to go. She just wanted to see if they were getting anywhere on Linda's murder. Danny assures her they're working on it, and then promises to take her to dinner. The lunch date is actually a charity auction luncheon that Jane is working. The Gregsons are also there, and when Walter attempts to be affectionate with Sally, she rebuffs him, something Jane overhears. She interjects, trying to be positive, but it ends up making the situation even more awkward. The Gregsons then end up bidding against each other for an item with Walter winning and Sally stalking out in a huff. On her way to take the money to the safe, Jane apologizes to Sally for sticking her nose in their business. Sally assures her that it's okay. Their marriage troubles would be out sooner or later. Jane goes into the accounting office and is startled to find Walter there. It seems he forgot to sign his check. He corrects his mistake and then strangles Jane to death, adding a few lines of the poem on her thigh with lipstick. Five-O is called in and at the sight of Jane's body, Danny is overcome with grief. He runs outside with Steve and Chin chasing after him. Falling to his knees, Danny breaks down sobbing. Steve tries to comfort Danny, but he knows the words are inadequate. He tells Danny to take some time off, but Danny insists on working the case. Steve tells him that they'll talk about it tomorrow. However, Danny doesn't wait for that conversation, and Steve finds him in the office. He reluctantly allows it and listens in as Chin talks about the witness statements, autopsy, and the gloves the killer probably used. Danny suggests that the charity might be a connection since both of the murdered women worked there. Steve thinks he might be onto something. Meanwhile, Sally informs Walter that she wants a divorce. Walter is always so busy working, investing all of his time in his construction business and leaving little for her. Walter argues it, but Sally wants him out of the house by the time she gets back from her weekly charity outing. Danny talks to Miss Casello, a woman at the charity. She doesn't know the Lord Byron poem, but she does tell Danny that Jane brought her some of the paintings being auctioned. She gives Chin the name of the artist, who's also a dishwasher for the club, Pete King. Chin and Danny go to talk to him and discover that Jane had given him a lot of money to help him through school, something Danny didn't know about. Danny suggests that Jane might have cut off his funding and he didn't like it, a good motive. And as a dishwasher, he had access to the same kind of gloves the killer used. He looks pretty good for it, but King doesn't agree. When he tells Danny that he doesn't really care and he's just dragging Jane's name through the mud, not realizing Danny was involved with her, Danny loses his cool and attacks King. Standing in front of Steve's desk like a naughty schoolboy, Danny explains that King had a solid alibi for Jane's murder. He then tries to hand Steve his resignation. Steve talks him into taking a vacation instead and assures Danny he'll do what he can if King decides to file charges. Danny then goes home to Stu and is surprised when Pete King knocks on his door. In a twist, King apologizes for provoking Danny. He didn't know that he and Jane were involved. He goes to explain that Jane helped him through school because she was born into money and wanted to pass on what she had. He also gives Danny a vital piece of information. Jane mentioned the poem to King after Linda died. She said that Miss Hawthorne would be upset. Danny puts the pieces together. Miss Hawthorne was a teacher at a finishing school that Jane attended, and the poem was adopted by five of the girls in her class who consider themselves orphans by choice, neglected by their parents. Two of them, Linda and Jane, are dead. The other three were also in attendance at the wedding rehearsal. And one of them is Sally Gregson. <laughs>
Okay, in a complete tone shift from the previous episode, if you're not careful, you will drop your transmission going from over 50 steel to beautiful screamer because it is a much more serious, much more emotional episode. Dan, I'm wondering, what did you think of Beautiful Screamer? I, I think it's a pretty darn good uh, episode. And there is, I think if, if uh, a week in between episodes uh, would have been fine. I think I, I spent, um, I was watching this on Paramount Plus, and I think I got 14 seconds in between two episodes. So this one... um. It, it does hit you pretty quick. And, you know, uh, when you see Lloyd Bachner, what are you going to do? You know, oh, no, Lloyd, keep off of that. And it's it's one of my absolute favorite moments in it is something I think we'll talk about when we get to the spoiler. So I'll, I'll set that aside. But I think it's just really to see Dano being happy with his girlfriend. And they're at this lovely country club wedding rehearsal and everyone's rich and everyone's happy and everyone's beautiful and there's this little kid who, who would have been me with a, a camera taking pictures of everything and and then someone gets horribly murdered on the tennis court nearby that 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 never happened when you know anything i was at when i was a kid but i think actually pardon me i think the thing that threw me was the title beautiful screamer i was like oh this is going to be another comedy this is like a goofy like horror host you know, this is like, you know, the Crypt Keeper. This is about a beautiful screamer. And, and, but that that's not. It's not that sort of episode. It's a, um, it's, it's a um, much darker episode. And Dano goes through a lot. And, and um, when you get to the revelation of why it's happening, it's sort of like, oh, that's why you're doing it. You want, you want to punch Bachner through the TV. Luckily, Dano takes care of that. But um, it's it's I, I think it's 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 quite a sharp sharp. I say sharp. This is my new word to describe things. I've been doing this on my podcast too. Sharp. It's a sharp. It's sharply written. But I think it is. I, I think it's a it's a it's a nicely done episode. It's it's well written. It is dark, and it has enough going on in it to keep it moving until you get to the ending, and then the ending is is nicely puts a cap on it. So I think, but but as far as as sort of pop culture whiplash goes, whew, if you watch this one immediately following the other one, you, the moment Bachner puts on those like blue kitchen gloves, you're like, oh, this is not going to be fun, and it is fun, but it's not like fun fun like like Bachner versus Cronin. You've got two different sort of things going on there, but um, it's I, I think it's a very good episode, um, but maybe you should give yourself five minutes between watching this one and the previous one. Yeah, Over 50 Steel is much lighter. This is really, really emotional, particularly because we're watching one of our faves, my TV boyfriend, Danny, (laughs) suffering. And the thing is, is that what's interesting about this episode is it does something that um, a lot of television did back in the day and still kind of does every once in a while is that we are introduced to a character, in this case... Danny's girlfriend who has never been mentioned prior to this so you have to think that they that whatever their relationship is hasn't been mentioned at the office in any other episode Uh, we the audience are just now meeting her and she's basically specifically there to be murdered so Danny can suffer she's a plot device is what it is yes yeah and while that typically grates particularly for me in this case I kind of forgive it because Jane is played by Ann Archer, and she's just so sweet and mm-hmm. so likable. Yeah. 
and she's such a pretty crier that you 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 like her yeah. almost immediately when you meet her especially when you see the aftermath of Danny dealing with her after her friend Linda's been murdered on the tennis court and you you sympathize with her but you can also see why Danny loves her so much because she is just so sweet and you see her at the auction and she's trying to smooth things over with two of her fighting friends Bachner and um, his wife who absolutely loathes him and <laughs> it's it's just you you do get to know her enough that when she is murdered about halfway through the episode not even quite halfway through you feel awful not just for Danny yeah. but also for her so even though she hasn't been mentioned prior to this there's still enough there that you're able to feel bad about it mm-hmm. and feel bad ju- for her as well as for Danny mm-hmm. but yeah it is a real it's a real heavy episode because i mean it kicks off with Linda's murder on the tennis court during this wedding reception and it was and you know who the killer is the whole time yeah thank you Walter <laughs> and it's great too the way they set it up because everybody's kind of celebrating they're taking a little break and they're drinking champagne and Walter excuses himself to go get more and that's when he slips outside to go kill Linda whom he knows so that makes it even worse that he knows her but he pulls on these kitchen gloves and strangles her and apologizes while he's strangling her and then slips back in and while he's strangling her it's cutting between that and the the wedding party like going through the motions Mm -hmm. of the of the wedding because it's a rehearsal so it's just really like kind of makes it more awful that this great joyous thing is happening and someone's being murdered and then walter slips back in with the champagne and toasts to love and you like man they Bachner. can't kill you fast enough yeah <laughs> you are an awful awful person <laughs> and the fact too the thing is that we never uh we never really go back to that wedding so we never no. learn like it was like did they cancel the wedding did they go ahead with it or you know it's like uh, and then when two people involved die, you know, it's like, and they must have thought like, I would like to see an alternate episode where you see the people at the wedding thinking, our wedding's cursed, but then nothing else happens. <laughs> I because would say that they probably eloped. They went to Vegas and oh, yeah. said, absolutely not. No, we no. want to get married, but no. <laughs> <laughs> we, th- we thought coming to Hawaii would be beautiful paradise. No, 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 no. <laughs> Someone goof that one up big time. Yeah. Yeah, so it's set up from the very beginning that we know who our bad guy is. And what was interesting, too, about it is that the whole point is that he's setting this up to make it look like uh, some psychopath is doing this. Well, guess what, sir? You're kind of not far off from that, considering your actual motives, but we will get to those later. But out on the tennis court, of course, 5-0 is called in because these are rich people. And... (laughs) He's written in lipstick on her thigh this line, a couple of lines from a Byron poem, yes. or Byron poem, mm-hmm. and it, it implies that there could be more victims, which obviously unnerves everybody. Mm-hmm. So Steve tells Danny to go in and talk to the guests because he knows all these people and he's going to do other things. And Chin's already in there, and poor Chin is tasked with, with interviewing like 137 people. <laughs> yes. It's like, yeah. oh my gosh, poor Chin. <laughs> Yeah, and he's got he's got it all like like when they when they when they and later on when they're mentioning specific names, it's like um well, uh I well one of the women was Susie Tyrell and there's Chin. 
Yeah, yep. I've got her down. And uh, Jennifer Clark. Yep, she's right here. And it's like he got it. He got I those those notebooks must be so cool because cops write such great stuff in those notebooks. Are the five O guys cops actually, or are they? Technically, the way this is supposed to be is that the 5-0 is a state police task force. Okay. Uh, Hawaii actually doesn't have a state police. They they have uh, just the local. So that's what 5-0 is supposed to be. They're supposed to be like the state police. It, it, ne- it actually never occurred because, like I said, I've only watched about 20 episodes. But like because the, they never – I rarely see them mixing with the actual police and they're always going to the governor. Yeah, they so, they don't answer to HPD. Okay. They utilize HPD quite a bit. So we see uh-huh. a lot of uniformed. Whenever we see the uniformed officers, um, and they often refer to uh, get bolos out to HPD and stuff like that. Okay. So they work with HPD, but they don't answer to HPD. They're their own govern. They're their own agency, and they pretty much only answer to the governor. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I I don't remember what we were talking about in the episode, but. Uh... Um, oh, we were discussing legs, um, thighs. We, we were discussing legs and thighs. Yes, it was it was the chicken dinner. No, <laughs> we were we after were the rehearsal. As far as the preliminary report shows, it happened very quickly. How can you be so detached? Look, I knew Linda, and I liked Linda. It's my job to find out who killed her. I'm sorry. It was really interesting because he's talking to Jane, who's obviously very upset. And like I said, Ann Archer, pretty crier. I mean, just yeah. glorious tears running, and she yes. wasn't even snot bubbling, nothing. <laughs> and he's talking to her, and she's like, how can you be so detached? And Danny's kind of looking at her like, I am in cop mode. This is what I do. And he says, "I'm su- this is my job. I'm supposed to find who killed her. Yeah. And she forgives him for that, but... Uh- it's just it was just kind of an interesting moment of her realizing exactly the nature of, of what Danny's he does, job yeah. and, and what and, he has to do. And you see Danny sort of uh it drops just for a second so he can say that. Yeah. And then it sort of and and she realizes it, "Oh gosh, sorry." And then it comes back. You know, and yeah. then he's back, he's back in mode. Yeah. Because it comes up a little bit later too cuz when they're back at the office. Oh, yes, I think it's like yeah. the next day or whatever and they say, hey, there's a lady to see you. It's Jane. And he's like, oh, my gosh, it was a lunch date. I forgot about it. I'll go cancel. He's When he says that to Steve, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'll go cancel. And Steve has this little smile like, good boy. Good boy. Because <laughs> yes, he sounds very much like a little boy trying to please his dad yes. in that moment, which happens occasionally. <laughs> it happens another time in this episode. So he goes out and cancels it. He goes to to apologize to Jane and say that he can't make it. And she's like, well, of course you can't. Yeah. I understand that. And it's like, oh, how nice that she's not going to throw a tantrum that he can't stop looking for yes. his friends, for her friend's killer. I didn't think to she come would, to though. This. I, yeah, I didn't think she would. She but, doesn't want to go to the luncheon, but she has to. Yes. Because she's working this terrible charity auction. And so, but it was really nice to see her be very understanding. And, and she's basically there to, to let Danny know that and to also say, hey, any updates on who murdered my friend? Yes. And sadly, he's just like, we're going through the motions, we're going through all of the processes, we it, yeah. and we're looking. So yeah. he doesn't have any updates to give her yeah. necessarily. And, and take me to dinner. She says, take yes. me to dinner. Yes, will you volunteer to take me to dinner? And he, I, and he, and he immediately volunteers. And yes. it's a very sweet scene. Sweet. It, it really is. Do you remember her, the, her last words to him? 
She said, I love you. Yes. And he, he looks like he's going to return it, but he also looks like he's a little like, you do? And he has this yeah. kind of like boyish. He has like the a variation of the look he gave McGarrett or McGarrett, you know, when he McGarrett gave him, you know, it's like, well, I'll, I'll cancel it. McGarrett's like, you will. And then she says, I love you. And he's like, you do? And there's all this, all these lovely little faces going on in the 5-0. Yes, because it, it looks like he looks like that's the first time she's ever said that to him. That does and he's kind just of struck he, by it. He's a little, yeah. He's a little like, uh, yeah. I um, we, we all we all know that feeling. I think everyone listening to this podcast has been in love at least once. And if you haven't, we're so sorry. We're so <laughs> sorry. But you have that moment where you know either you say it to someone or someone says it to you, and maybe they're not expecting it. Maybe you feel it, and you, but you're not quite ready to say it. Or, you know, so, and he just gives her a look, and you could tell he loves her too. But he's mm-hmm. either. He either doesn't want you know Jenny to hear him say it, or he you know he doesn't want you know he think maybe the if they had panned over like all the guys would have been like doing like a um like a Three Stooges or Marx Brothers things where like they were all peering out around the doorway <laughs> one head above another going what's he doing what's he doing and he didn't want maybe he was a little embarrassed but it's just a it's a sweet moment and then when you watch the episode a second time and you realize it's the last words he says she says to him before she's horribly murdered it becomes a bittersweet moment. It, yeah, it does because he looks he looks like he's on cloud nine when she yes. says that. So yeah, so she goes to work this charity auction, and the Gregsons are there, and Ooh, you get wow. the very clear feeling that Sally Gregson loathes her husband, uh, and it's like he can't accept that. Yeah, <laughs> because he he's knows. still trying to be like affectionate with her in public and everything, and she's just like, "Will you please give it a rest? I don't yeah. want this." And Jane at happens to overhear them and she tries to smooth things over by saying something to the effect of in a happy marriage couples aren't afraid to fight or something like that mm-hmm. and Sally's like well I guess we deserve a prize and or an award or something and she leaves mm-hmm. and Jane's like whoops <laughs> yeah but then she later apologizes to her about that and Sally's like well it's okay it was gonna come out anyway that their marriage is shit and it's it's funny because that that sequence where uh, she goes to uh, apologize to her, they're um, they're uh, they're in the country club and they're overlooking like a glorious lawn and I think there might be water in the distance or something and it's like it looks um, in HD it looks so gorgeous it looked fake the first moment I saw it it looked like it was a green screen or something but this was 1970 and if it had been a green screen it would look like absolute crap. So it's it's it was it was real and it's like that's one of the things I forget too when I watch the show is there 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 were moments like in the previous episode where they were driving down streets and stuff and I thought oh I recognize that part of L.A. and then I was like oh wait a minute no Dan no 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 no, no, no. Um, but when they actually go to like like most a lot of this is in the country club or on like by the water and stuff and it's like it's and this one i noticed the last one the cl- the sky was really clear this one is pretty cloudy i don't know how they got the comedy episode to have clear skies and the dark episode to have cloudy skies but whoever the production designer on the show is they should have got an emmy yeah thank thanks for controlling the weather for us <laughs> please to set the thank correct you so much. mood really thank appreciate so that that is actually kind of uh remarkable considering yeah. how how good the weather typically is in Honolulu that they were able to get that perfect gray sky for that that yeah. one scene so good work yeah they now now may I ask did they 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 did they they have a studio they used they built 
there? They had. I have a great story about this. They have a. Oh. They had a production studio mm-hmm. that they did use. The office sets were for the first few seasons. Who I believe were uh, housed in a, like an old Quonset hut type thing oh, they, uh, that okay. they said was just horrible, and they were eventually able to move to a, a warehouse. I think, but they did have production studios there. And that is a big reason why Magnum P.I. got greenlit in 1980 was because because. Hawaii Five-0 was ending in April and they wanted to continue to use the production offices there. And so Magnum P.I. got the green light and uh, aired in December of 1980. When it went off the air in 1988, they still, CBS still had um, some time on the lease and they didn't want it to go to waste. They didn't want the production office to sit empty. Uh-huh. So they moved Jake and the Fat Man to yes. Hawaii. So they could utilize the offices there. And when the lease ran out, they Jake shot and the Fat William Man Conrad. moved back to L.A. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, so they did have offices. But they utilized location shoots a lot. There's a lot of location yeah. shots there. And there's one house in particular that has shown up in multiple episodes. <laughs> Um, the house that they used for Robin's Nest in Magnum P.I. has shown up in like oh, okay. three yeah. episodes so far. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, they have a lot of location shooting. There's location shooting in this particular episode uh, okay. in the spoiler territory. So, oh, yeah. yeah, they they did it a lot, but they did have production offices. Right. Yeah, because I, I know like with the, with the houses and stuff like in Hollywood, they have like certain certain networks and studios own certain like houses up in the hills and stuff. So that's why you'll see like certain places. There, there's um, there's a house that was in like a Columbo, and it was in like a Colchak, and it's it was in the first Columbo with uh, well, it was in the first regular Columbo with uh, Jack Cassidy. It's the house he lives in in Murder by the Book, and then uh, it was in the uh, Colchak episode with a vampire, and it was like an episode. It was like a house that the network owned up in the hills, and they just use it, you know, whenever they needed it. So. I, I I like that. I I didn't I didn't know the full um, production background on the show. This is the episode, people, where I learn. So if if you listen to me, the two previous times I was pretending like I knew. I didn't know. <laughs> it's Hawaii Five O is a learning experience, yes. and we're always learning new things. <laughs> yes, yay! What can you say at a moment like this, Dano? I remember when my sister's baby died. You. You tried to comfort me, but words seem so inadequate at times like this. If there's anything I can do, anything, my friend, let me know. I, I will say it is very uh, affecting the moment when when Dano sees his his gal dead, and then he runs out and he he runs into the field and he sees her in a in a slightly awkward but also moving moment where she's like in a dress running towards him. She sees an image, which reminded. Unfortunately, that that reminded me a bit of there was a movie called The Side Hackers that they covered on Mystery Science Theater three thousand a long time ago, and that has a scene where the two main characters are running to each other in a field, which gets a little goofy. Uh, that reminded me of that for a second, but the moment when Dano hits the ground, and and McGarrett is there, and I think it's Chin Ho is there too, and and he's like he's he's like he's almost like doing a Stella. He's like like platoon. He's looking up at the sky and he's screaming in pain. And like McGarrett and, and Chin Ho are both kind of holding on to him, and it goes to a freeze frame. Is really nice. I mean, it's it's horrible and tragic, but like dramatically, it's like wow. That's yeah. I think I I think I've said this about the show before, but you don't really expect um 
at this time period shows like this for them to get into the main characters lives usually the people who have the emotional stuff are the secondary characters uh, like say like a Rockford Files you know where Jim he wanders into crap every single week where he helps people out and at the end he's like wah wah you know um, but but this it's it's nice to see an episode where it's like it's so based in, in, in trying to find the killer and everything and it's it's a, it's a really nice touch and I, I would imagine it's one of the things that made the show last so long as yeah. you got into it like that because they did have those occasional personal episodes where we got like a little bit of this. There's an earlier one in this season where McGarrett's confronted with an old flame who might have murdered her husband. And there's a lot of flashbacks in that. And so we get to see him struggle with that. And we get to see Danny struggle with this because, again, Walter kills Jane and apologizes the whole time because he tricks her. Well, he doesn't really trick her. He's you got to give him credit. He is a bit clever. He meets her in the accounting office and startles her and says, hey, I forgot to sign my check, which he totally did. So it looks like it's legitimate. And then while she her back is turned, she, he puts on the gloves and, and ends up killing her and apologizes the whole time and then yeah. writes on her with lipstick. And when Danny comes in, he knows it's her. And Steve and, and Shannon are already working, and he can't even get like through the door before he's losing it and he takes off running and Steve bless Steve and Chin I've said yes. this in previous episodes that this team is more than just coworkers yes that they really do care for each other you really and feel when that, Steve yeah. yeah when Steve and Chin go running after him to console him because like you said it is incredibly heartbreaking like your heart is ripped out when he hits the ground the flashback is a little goofy but or the the, the whatever that is yeah, every time I see it, I'm like, it kind of takes away from that scene just a little bit because it is so weird and awkward and unnecessary. Yeah, but you can see what still, you can see what they're doing, but but it doesn't yeah. because we haven't we haven't we we didn't we didn't we haven't seen them do that kind of thing. It just ends up feeling like is he actually seeing an image of her running towards him, or is he hallucinating, or is he just, is maybe that's her running to heaven. <laughs> maybe maybe that's maybe that's her running to heaven and she's just like an angel she flies over him. Yeah, I'm going to say that like that's we, what that is. That's what that is. I feel like we don't need to be so awkwardly reminded that this was his girlfriend and he really did care for her since we just saw it like I don't you know 5 be right. minutes before. Yeah, yeah. So it just it always hits awkwardly for me, but when he hits the ground Yes. And yells, like you said, and they're consoling him. I mean, that just goes to show how much the team cares for each other and then the very next scene is they're in Danny's apartment and Steve is telling him you know I know words are inadequate at a time like this and he actually does a callback to an earlier episode which doesn't always happen definitely not in shows at this time no but um not even in this series very often but he he refers to a first season uh two-part episode when he was talking about the death of his nephew and he says I remember when you tried to console me about that he goes, I know that words are inadequate, but if there's anything I can do. And, of course, Danny wants to work the case. And Steve is like, mm, why don't you, why don't we talk about it tomorrow? Because you've had a very big day and you're a bit upset and you're drinking. So we'll discuss that later. And then what happens is that Steve shows up in the office and there's Danny yes. working with Chin Ho and Kono. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. he listens well. <laughs> yes. I don't want your resignation, Danny. Yeah, but you don't get to resign. May I say, I actually have the episode playing right here, and I know I know we'll get to this, but I, I will say the way they 
treat the two scenes or the three scenes with the um the painter who yes. I, I I think it's is really it's really nicely done. I think it's really well it's a well written and well acted series of scenes where you think it's gonna be something you think it's gonna be one thing, but then in the end it becomes almost like a um I, 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 w- I was thinking of um uh, if you ever seen the movie Shortcuts, and the, the sequence in that with um, Lyle Lovett, where the little kid gets hit by the car and he makes a cake for this family, and they never pick up the cake because the kid dies, and then the mother and father go to yell at the baker, and then they suddenly, and then everyone breaks down into tears because this child has died, and then and and you think it's going to go like a horrible way, but it doesn't because it ends with him like giving them fresh bread, and saying, "Please just sit for a moment. Here's here's." Here's here's something. Just have this. Let's talk. And this is sort of like that. Where when you see the painter, he looks a bit like. Pardon my French. Oh shit! It's a beatnik. <laughs> Look out! But he's actually a nice guy who who has a job, and the girlfriend was helping him out because she liked his painting, and 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 Danny gets gets a little rough with him. But they have the the lovely scene when he shows up at Daniel's apartment, and he's like, "I need to apologize to you." And I, like I beat you up, <laughs> you don't have to apologize to me. But he's like, no, you know. And it's just, it's just a, it's it's an unexpected little scene that gives us kind of a major clue that we need. But it's also kind of just a lovely um, thing that you I, I didn't expect. I didn't expect to see uh, in it. Yeah, and that's kind of a lot of this episode after after Jane is murdered because what is interesting, and I don't know if you really noticed it. But Steve reluctantly allows Danny to work this case. And it's almost as if he is stepping back a little bit and letting Danny lead it. Because Danny is asking about witnesses. He's asking about yes. evidence. He's um, He comes up with the idea that because both of the women worked for this one particular charity, that maybe the charity was involved. And Steve's kind of letting him take the lead. He, I think he understands that Danny needs to do this, that Danny needs to find this this killer. Yes. And so he's kind of stepped back a little bit. So that was kind of a little bit surprising that he didn't keep very tight reins on Danny. But then, you know, Danny gets the, the lead to the painter. And if you're paying attention at all during the charity auction, you will have heard his name before. Yes. Because what the paintings that the Gregsons bid against each other for... <laughs> Because their loathing knows no bounds, um, it was it one of his paintings. It was one of Pete King's paintings, and so they get that name from the very nice charity lady, Mrs. Costello, and they go and talk to to Pete. And Pete does not know Danny from any other cop, and Jane has never mentioned Pete to Danny at any point. So they do not know the specifics of each other. And Jane had been giving him money for school and Danny didn't know anything about that. So Danny speculates that, oh, well, let me guess, she cut you off and you didn't like that. And because you're a dishwasher at the the country club, you had access to the gloves so you could have used those and all of this stuff. And Chin Ho, bless his heart, steps in and says, Danny, he needs to be advised of his rights. You need to back up a little bit. We have to do this right. And then he says something else and implying that they had like, uh, I think he refers to it as a relationship or something What about the nature of the relationship. And he's like, you know, don't yes. make it dirty. Don't drag her name through the mud. Yes. You know. Pause. Know. Yeah. Yeah. And then. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. Because he's like, because he says, "You, I know you, or I guess you don't care, or I know you don't care, or something mm-hmm. like that. Yes. But, you know, don't yeah. draw your hands in that. And then she, and he, like, just, like, launches. And you <laughs> see in the slow-mo, literally. there's Kono and Chinho trying to come yes. and pull him off of him. Yeah, he beat the shit out of him. Uh, yeah, he really did. And that the, the the joy of it is that McGarrett talks to him very calmly and says, you know, I understand. And if this gentleman presses charges, I understand. And then Danny is, is in his home, his apartment, wherever, having a sandwich, a glass of milk, and reading, uh, you know, an article about his dead uh, girlfriend. And uh, there's a knock at the door. And Mr. King, was that his name? I, f- I yeah, forget. Yeah, King. And he's all beat up, and he's got a really bad, his right eye is really badly bruised. And that's, they have this just lovely thing where he's like, no, man, I, I didn't come over to, you know, because Danny's like, you should have your lawyer. And he, no, 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 no. I've come to apologize to you because they told me what you, you two meant to one another, and she was a, a great person. And, you know, basically, like, if she loved you and she was a great person, then I'm you know i overstepped by by going where i went so i apologize and they have a they have a nice sort of chat together and it's 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 actually really kind of sweet it's it's kind of a sweet moment it is it is so unanticipated you don't expect Mm. him to to come and and apologize for poking at the bear exactly it's it's very it's very disarming because you you don't expect that like in in a show you know like that like the mr king thought so much of her that getting a severe beating from her boyfriend <laughs> didn't st- didn't stop him from going. I mean, that is that's sweet. I mean, that that is le- a legitimate scene where it's like, wow. That's and I, I wonder people watching at the time would they have just thought, oh, that dirty beatnik, he's up to something, or would they, would they have thought like like I did, where I was like, oh wow, I believe him, and you know, I yeah. believe you know, and it's it's just it's a it's a it's um like I said, the purpose of the the scene is to give us a clue. But it's also, it's also like a sweet human moment in an episode that has some very inhuman moments. Yeah, because you're because it kind of gives you an idea of what Jane saw in him—not just his artistry, yes. but why yes. she wanted to help him because she had the money and he didn't. Because he's a genuinely nice guy, and at the time he thought he was defending her, not realizing yeah. Danny's connection with her. Yeah. So yeah, to see him come and apologize was really nice. I'm guessing that it was probably not necessarily going to be that way, but I think there's like an implication that because Steve said he would take care of the charges, because yeah. Danny does try. Danny feels awful about this, yeah, about losing his cool and beating the crap out of the guy, and he wants to resign, and Steve won't let him. And says, yes, yes, yes. Instead, you'll take vacation because he's standing in front of Steve's desk, looking like a boy who got caught throwing spitballs. <laughs> And when he, especially when he has to admit that, that Pete King had a solid alibi, because what was Pete doing? He was in the in the time the during the time of death. He was in the uh, chef's office getting chewed out. Yes, for, for like half an hour. Uh, yeah, for, yeah, yeah, for for <laughs> sketching sketching on the job. Yes, so you kind of think that maybe Steve might have had a hand in making sure that Pete knew what the Danny's relationship with yeah. Danny was. Yeah, I'd like to think that, like someone would maybe when they were, um, it when he was in the hospital or whatever, maybe maybe even McGarrett went to him, and and said, "Hey, I don't know if McGarrett would have done that, but maybe he would have. I don't know." And just said, "Hey, man, here's here's what's happening. Here's why he went crazy on you." Yeah, 
I think I think Steve would have because I think Steve understood. Yeah. But yes, Pete does give us this huge clue because Jane had mentioned uh, the poem that she recognized the poem yes. that was left on Linda's leg and said that Miss Hawthorne would be very upset. And it turns out Miss Hawthorne was a teacher at a finishing school that all five girls went to, um, or five of these girls went to, and two of them were Jane and Linda. And then there was two other girls who had names, and I didn't write them down. And then the other one was Sally Gregson. So now they're, they found this other connection that kind of puts things in a different in a different direction, that they yes. think, oh, okay, we, we have the basis for this... Uh, obvious psychotic killers mm-hmm. methods he's killing the girls that belong to this group because they called themselves um something like the the what was it some kind of an orphan they were they were the yeah they were it was like i think they were the orphans because it was like yeah. they were all their parents were rich and kind of left them at a school which you know i i wouldn't have minded that what why um, would that have been horrible i would have yeah. enjoyed that I, that would have been fun but uh, you or, know, yeah, they were orphans by choice because Orphan, their parents yes, were yeah. so neglectful. Mm-hmm. That's what that was. Yes, yeah, and so that puts them in the direction of okay, so these other women might be in danger. Let's put a tail on all of them. So I think we're we're moving into spoiler territory yeah. at this point. Yeah. So let's go ahead and put up the spoiler warning now. Um, like I said, it'll be time stamped in the description. So you'll be able to look to, to skip ahead so you can listen again without concern. But spoiler time starts now. Which means he murdered Jane. This is the cover. This is a part of a plot. Oh, God! Lloyd Bachner has a secret getaway hatch in his trailer on his construction site. That's a sign of a bad guy. Or, or yes. a sign of a rapscallion. But he's not a rapscallion. He's a bad guy. <laughs> the, the, it's, it's funny because you, you think like... You, you sort of get the feeling that he was going to try to kill all five of them. And with his wife being last, maybe. Or maybe second last. Or something like that. But because his wife says to him, we're getting divorced, leave the house now. He has to do it now. Um, I actually, I suppose he could have waited, but I suppose he didn't want to move out. So, so, but, but the moment she says, "We're getting a divorce, move out of the house now," and she leaves his trailer you know, on the construction site he's on, he instantly says, "No one in my trailer for the next few hours. I'm working." He locks the door, and he's got a little booby hatch underneath there that he throws up, and he jumps out, and he pretends to be a construction worker, and he escapes. And I thought. I wonder how many of those are on regular construction sites. Probably not for murderers, but maybe for guys who want to go on an early lunch or something. I don't know. But that's that's a bad sign when you when your boss has this hatch. Yeah, because he's either a bad guy or he's in a Green Hornet episode. <laughs> yes, be my guess. Exactly. I do love what Kono uh, storming in there and finding the hatch is a great scene. <laughs> where he's oh like, my gosh, the the construction guy's like he doesn't want to be disturbed, and Kono's like not my problem. And then he's <laughs> then he's like you know trying yes. to get the door open and he can't, and they're like you can't get the door open, and he's like bet, and he <laughs> Kono's the door open. Yes, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> um, so I. Uh, uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I dove in immediately with the Lloyd Bachner thing because uh, that just happened to play the moment we did the spoiler. But if you want to, please give the spoilers and I'll stop talking. <laughs> well, I mean, that's true. That does happen because Sally does go in and asks for a divorce. And 
he he has the nerve to to be like no true love will find a way and it's like dude she hates you take the l yeah but <laughs> then you you realize that it's a, it has something uh, uh, there's a little more monetary motivation and that comes because the the kid that we saw at the beginning taking the pictures at the wedding reception who tried to sneak some champagne Jane should have let him have it. He deserved it because he took a picture of the clock at the beginning and end of each roll to basically like a time card. Nice. They were able to get those pictures developed and they looked and said, okay, well, here's so-and-so at this time. Here's so-and-so at this time. And they noticed that Walter was gone for 14 minutes. Yes. So they knew it was him. And then upon investigation into his finances, they find out that his construction company that he went on and on and on about with his wife, about how it was, he built it with his own two hands. And she's like, yeah, and that's the only thing you love because you don't have time for me or anything else, is in debt. He's borrowed like $2 million against his own value. And he used some of his wife's assets to do this without her knowledge. So... You, it's starting to come together that he's basically killing, going to kill his wife before she can divorce him so he can inherit. Nobody finds out about him borrowing against her own assets without her knowledge. And the other two murders were simply a cover. And yeah. the revelation of this, oh. that Danny finally finds out why Jane had to die. And it was literally a uh. money scheme basically yes was just for gain just yeah. breaks him yeah. he just like I, loses it. it it you you because you you've seen that in other um movies and 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 things and stuff where like there have been several killings but i mean they said what didn't they say that with like jack the ripper too that like um like uh that it was uh, one one of the uh, conspiracy theories was that it was like they were actually like one of the prostitutes they it was something to do with the royal family or something and they were that one of the prostitutes was killed because of she'd fathered a child with someone that she shouldn't have or something but they killed the other prostitutes to make it look like it was a crazy person killing prostitutes and so when she got killed like as number three out of like however many (laughs) he killed um it didn't it didn't seem weird at the time you know or it's like um it's kind of like a blowout one of my favorite Brian De Palma films, like John Lithgow's crazy ass plan in that, is very similar to this too. But the thing, the thing with this one though, is that I don't think we've ever, that I know of, I don't think we've ever been inside this before. It's always been like you know the detective going, well he killed um, Sarah and then he killed Jane and then he killed this person. And the only reason he killed Sarah and Jane was to make it look like it was a spree or something. Ha ha! But in this one, we're like, we're in the middle of it. Where it's like, he killed this person, then he killed my absolute love of my life. And now he's going to kill his wife. And the reason why he killed my love was to make it look like a psycho did it. And there's something about that that's like being put in the middle of it. That's kind of, I felt for Danny. I didn't break out into tears because I'm a man and we don't do that. (laughs) <laughs> but I, I just, I just, I was like, wow, that's, that's really clever and sad and tragic and all these things. But it was really like the moment, you, the moment you find out, it's like, oh, Bachner, oh boy, I got yeah. some, yeah, yeah, Be- because like 
there was gonna there was never gonna be a good a good reason for her to die obviously yes, yes there's yes, no yes. there's no good excuse for that but then to find out that it was for money like uh-huh. somehow made it even worse mm-hmm. like I think Danny would be more understanding if this dude was if there was some dude who was off his nut and for whatever reason he felt wronged by these five women and was yes. taking it out on them yeah. I think he would be a little more understanding of that but the fact that it was literally done for money just really oh, really yeah. kills him literally i mean it just like it just crushes him that you, she was that her life basically had a dollar value put on it yes and you, you can see like in the final scene when they're fighting on that 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 hill it's a really nicely done fight scene i i think um and and the way he he's going to shoot him but then he's too close uh she's going to shoot bachner but bachner's too close to his wife so he's like he's on the edge of this sandy hill that's leading down to this beach and he does this great leap where he gets right on bachner and knocks him down and he, he knocks the wife for a bit of a tumble but he gets right on bachner and knocks him down they get a big haul haul ass drag out every which way but loose style fisticuff fights although Bachner does grab a stick at one point begins to wave it around and Danny is able to control himself and bring him in and that fi- the final well well I'm, I'm sorry I, I I'm hopping from one scene to another here but um I, th- I think th- the, the one problem I have with that fight scene is that I don't think they they set up exactly how much of a cliff there is that one could fall off of because there's that point where Lloyd Bachner is hanging off of it. It's like, help me, help me! And Danny's there looking at him going, I'm not going to help you. And he's like, I'm going to help you. And then he helps him. But we never quite get exactly what kind of a drop there is. We kind of do. Because the whole thing is that she's that Sally's taking the blind kids out on an outing. Uh-huh. And they're at the, I can't remember what the heck they call it. It's kind of a lookout. It's something bay. Something bay. Yeah, yeah. 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 And she's explaining to them because obviously blind they went for ice cream first and she gave her she gave her uh police escort ice cream which i thought was very sweet before mr softies yeah Yeah. he was unfortunately knocked out or worse Mm -hmm. by walter there so they're there and so she's asking them questions and and they're like i can tell we're high up because of the wind yeah okay and so yeah it's the the impression is that it's a considerable drop it's just that whole scene because so the the blind kids are lined up there, yes. And Walter shows up and and like you know gets her attention and she doesn't want to say anything in front of the children, so she tells them she's going to leave them for a minute. She'll just be over there. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, yes, leave the blind children yes, yes. by this drop off. That's not <laughs> going to be a problem at all. They'll all stand still. Yeah, and that's she what goes kids off, do. Yeah. She she goes off in that little cliff area where they end up having their knockdown drag out. And the thing is, is that while they're there, he starts, he tell you know, he's like, we're not getting divorced and all this stuff. And he starts putting on those gloves and she realizes that he's killed two of her friends. Mm-hmm. And she basically has a screaming meltdown. Yes. And, she's, and he's like, nobody's going to hear you. And I'm like, I don't know. The I... deaf children probably can. They're not that <laughs> far away. Yeah. And the thing is, though, it takes him nine years to put these gloves on. And she's yeah. just standing there having a meltdown. <laughs> yeah. Now, listen, maybe I'm just different. But if my <laughs> husband, if I'm standing there with the husband I loathe, and I find out that he's murdered two of my friends and he plans on murdering me, guess what? I'm not screaming. We, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's going to be injuries. 
he is going over that cliff. Yes. Because the whole point of that that fight with with him and Danny, and it is great. It is a great fight scene. And Lloyd goes over the edge, and he's holding on. Danny's making the choice in that moment between justice and revenge. Yes. And he chooses justice. Maybe because Kono is there witnessing it. I don't know. Because Kono does show up towards the end of that. And gives and, a But yell. he does yeah. choose justice. Now, if I were Sally, before Danny could have chosen justice, I would have kicked his ass off the damn cliff <laughs> and been like, Whoops. I think you should have made better life choices, son. <laughs> Y'all ain't going to try to murder me and get away with it. Yes. The I I will say I'm, I actually have the scene playing now, and I think my confusion over the cliff is that um, when he first drags her out there before Danny shows up, you can you kind of get the real feeling that there is a drop, but there is an overhead shot that they show a lot of them fighting, and that one you can't quite tell from the depth of field if how how big the drop is. It actually looks like they're pretty close to the beach in the depth just the depth of field of that shot so and and it was funny because when i watched it the second time uh right before we we started chatting i was watching that scene and i thought wait a minute is that the same it looks like there's like a 10 foot drop what's going on and because the the wife keeps like falling down and rolling towards that and there's never a feeling with her that like she's going to drop off anywhere it's just like, oh, she went down there again. Now she's coming back up. Oh, she went down there. And then when Lloyd Bachner is hanging off, it doesn't feel like he's hanging off of a high cliff. It feels like he's like, I'm going to drop 10 feet. Yeah, because it kind of feels like it's like a slope to a drop that's, off that's Yeah, that, that, more like a roll. Like, it would be a yeah, roll to the ground. He's not in imminent danger, but if he loses his grip, he's going off. And that also, since you brought it up, because he does fight with Sally to, in order, you know, when he's trying to murder her. And I'm like, so basically what you're saying is unless you are approaching a woman from behind and get them totally by surprise, you can't best them. Yes. Yeah. He, he had a, uh, he got Bachnered. Like, I understand that his ego has already taken multiple hits because yes. his wife outwardly hates him. Yes. But... The fact that he can't even murder her properly, like yeah. that's you're failing on multiple levels here, sir. Multiple yes. levels. Yeah, yeah. It's a. I mean, it's it's a. Yeah. He's and and when he says like uh, no one's gonna hear you scream, I thought no, I think people will. Yeah. Yeah. You're I, th- I think at that point. Spot. <laughs> yeah. At that at that point, he's gone crazy. You know, sort of, and it's um. Yeah, so it's a, it's. I mean, I, it's it's a very uh, solid ending, I think. In that moment when Dano is, you just see he, his back is to us, and he's kind of looking out over the bay, and it's gorgeous. And then McGarrett is like, "Hey, Dano," I, he calls him by his last name, which I never remember. I um, uh, Williams. W- yes, uh, Williams uh, McGarrett for Williams, you know. And then he slowly goes to the car and says, "Yeah, what's up? Did you get him? Yeah, we got him." She's safe. The kids are safe. And then he puts puts the uh, radio back and then drives away. It's kind of a lovely, I was I would say elegiac, elegiac ending. But it's kind of a lovely ending to the episode after the and because he has this huge like cut along his eye too. Yeah. And it's sort of like he got a beating, uh, but he he did save the day and he did the right thing. Yeah, there's some catharsis there that yes, happened. Yes, exactly. Yes. And, and that's the other noteworthy thing is that Steve is not there for the final fight. No, no. Um, 
Kono shows up because he and Kono, because they know she's going to be in like three different places. So they split up and Kono and Danny end up going to the same place. But Steve's on the poly. He doesn't know yes. what's going yeah. on. So that's also kind of rare for this for this show is that Steve doesn't have that final scene because it's a for an ensemble it's a very McGarrett centric show yeah so that it's Danny that gets that final scene and Steve is nowhere to be seen it it was yeah. it's very much a Danny episode yes yes and 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 McGarrett kind of helps uh, Danny close off the episode and then Danny drives away from the spot and the kids are set and you see the kids being put in the car Kona's putting them in the car making sure they're safe and then they go and it's um it's a it's a sad episode with an uh, inappropriate title but i think it's i think it's a very good one once again it's time to take a break from our chat so we can check in on our swell guest cast walter regson was played by lloyd bachner this is his first of four episodes he was Chief Inspector Neil Campbell on Hong Kong, Cecil Colby on Dynasty, and he was the voice of Mayor Hamilton Hill on Batman. He was also in episodes of Thriller, The Twilight Zone, Dr. Kildare, Perry Mason and the New Perry Mason, Honey West, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Wild Wild West, Green Hornet, The Man and the Girl from Uncle, Bonanza, Big Valley, Hogan's Heroes, Bewitched, The Virginian, Emergency, Ironside, Mannix, Columbo, Gunsmoke, Cannon, Chopper One, Ellery Queen, The Bionic Woman, The Six Million Dollar Man, Battlestar Galactica, Charlie's Angels, BJ and the Bear, Trapper John MD, Fantasy Island, Love Boat, The A-Team, Golden Girls, Murder, She Wrote, and Who's the Boss? He appeared in the movies The Commission, Legend of the Mummy, Naked Gun Two and a Half, Morning Glory, Deadly Deception, The Lonely Lady, Mr. No Legs, The Man in the Glass Booth, Olzana's Raid, and The Dunwich Horror. And he appeared in the TV movies, Crowhaven Farm, They Call It Murder, Satan's School for Girls, The Nurse Killer, Richie Brockelman, The Missing 24 Hours, The Golden Gate Murder, Mazes and Monsters, and Before I Say Goodbye. Sally Gregson was played by Lorraine Stevens. This is her first of three episodes. She was Clary Stepp on Rich Man, Poor Man, Book 2. Claire Kronsky on Matt Helm, Diane Waring on Bracken's World, and Susan Wentworth on OK Crackerby. She was also in episodes of Leave it to Beaver, Surfside 6, The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis, I Dream of Jeannie, The Mod Squad, Mission Impossible, Manix, Barnaby Jones, Cannon, Policewoman, Love Boat, and Fantasy Island. She appeared in the movies The Thousand Plane Raid, Hellfighters, and 40 Guns to Apache Pass. And she was in the TV movies The Screaming Woman, the Adventures of Nick Carter, Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders 1 and 2, Women in White, and Power. Jane Michaels was played by Ann Archer. This is her second listed credit on IMDb. She also was Carol Sanders on the TV version of Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. She was Annie Benjamin Nichols on Family Tree, Cassandra Wilder on Falcon Crest, and Laurel Limages on Privileged. She also appeared in episodes of Minute Law, Mod Squad, Ironside, The Sixth Sense, Little House on the Prairie, Harry O, Boston Public, The L Word, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and The Ghost Whisperer. She appeared in the movies Man of the House, The Art of War, Rules of Engagement, Clear and Present Danger, Body of Evidence, Narrow Margin, Fatal Attraction, Too Scared to Scream, Raise the Titanic, and Track Down. 
and she was in the TV movies The Blue Knight, A Matter of Wife and Death, The Dark Side of Innocence, A Different Affair, Jane's House, Jake's Women, and My Husband's Secret Life. Alan Ryland was played by Jack McCoy. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in King of the Hill. Brewster was played by Richard Gossett. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in Tiger by the Tail. Pete King was played by Michael Medeiros. This is his first listed credit on IMDb. He was Bernie Stokes on Texas. He also appeared in episodes of The Equalizer, Midnight Caller, Matlock, L.A. Law, Law and Order, Law and Order, Criminal Intent, Person of Interest, Manifest, and The Blacklist. And he appeared in the movies Depraved, X-Men First Class, NOLA, Drunks, RoboCop 2, and Alone in the Dark. Miss Costello was played by Emma Veery. This is her second of seven episodes. We also saw her in Sweet Terror. Linda was played by Valerie Holmes. This was her only credit. Mark Davis was played by Adrian McKibben. This is his only credit. The Tennis Pro was played by Jim Lathrop. This is his only credit. Roberts was played by Bernard Ching. This is his third of 15 episodes. He was also in the two-parter Three Dead Cows at Makapu'u. And in an uncredited role, Sergeant Fujiwara was played by Tommy Fujiwara, and this is his fifth of 24 episodes. Our writer Stephen Candle, in addition to four episodes of White Five O, is also the creator of Iron Horse, and he has writing credits for four episodes of The Millionaire, 14 episodes of Sea Hunt, 12 episodes of Rogues, four episodes of Gidget, five episodes of Batman, seven episodes of I Spy, four episodes of It Takes a Thief, four episodes of The Immortal, six episodes of Mission Impossible, 11 episodes of Mannix, 10 episodes of Medical Center, six episodes of Harry O, 10 episodes of Canon, five episodes of Wonder Woman, five episodes of Heart to Heart, and 17 episodes of MacGyver. And he has writing credits for the movies Singing in the Dark, Magnificent Roughnecks, The Walking Target, Chamber of Horrors, and Canon for Cordoba. And he has writing credits for the TV movies Deathstock, Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders 2, Shock Trauma, and Broken Promise. These were two uh, pretty great choices. Thank you um, for, for picking these. I, I, I enjoyed both of them very much. It's always interesting because I tend to pair the episodes up and I pick whatever our fa- my favorite is, whatever episode, just the way I schedule things. It's either the one before or the one after that we get stuck with. And it's always interesting to see the kind of juxtaposition that we end Mm -hmm. up with like in this case we had an incredibly light fun episode and then we had this episode that was just so emotionally wrenching it's it's it is it's a terrible gear shift you will drop your transmission if you try to watch them back to back like you said (laughs) give yourself five minutes because going from one to the other is is really really harsh so, yeah, I, I liked both of them. Obviously, Over 50 Steel is my favorite, but Beautiful Screamer is quite good and probably much more emotional than people would expect from this series because yes. I think people, with their casual knowledge of Hawaii Five O, they're thinking, oh, Bookum Dano, and they think it's just a typical, straightforward, dragnet-style police procedural. But there's actually, mm-hmm. there's first of all, there's a lot of humor in it, but there's also a lot more emotion in it than people... Mm-hmm. Uh, people realize and the actors they're much better than people give them credit for I'm always yes. lauding for Jack Lord and in yeah. this case James MacArthur 
they're they're much better than than people seem to think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I I, I thank you again. Yeah, these are these are two. I mean, these <laughs> these would be two if I, if I were to show the show to someone. And maybe maybe tomorrow I will. Um, I would show them these two episodes and say this is the range the show can do. I might show them Beautiful Screamer first, just because I think it would be more like something people would expect, and then show them the comedy one. I agree. This this is a good range to show. I would if you were gonna go three episodes, I would pick a Wofat episode, just because Wofat tends to be very. Um, the plots tend to be very intricate and large and so it's like here we can have some fun here we can Mm -hmm. be very emotional here we can go just shy of camp yes (laughs) and so you have this great range the show does have it's got great range Mm -hmm. and i don't and i'm it saddens me to think that people miss out because they don't think of it as being anything other than dry and serious when it's Mm -hmm. it has it all it really does yeah yeah Agreed. Thank you again. And I can't wait to come back for season four. I'm, I'm not even going to look ahead and guess at what you might have in store for me. Oh, season four. I do believe you're going to really enjoy season four. But before nice. we get there, um, where can we find you online? Uh, well, you can go on eventually super trained uh, blogspot.com. That, that'll link you to a lot of the podcasts I do. I do eventually super trained, which is a short lived TV show, which our host here has been on several times, uh, discussing the Green Hornet <coughs> and Auto Man, and maybe something in the future or in the past, depending upon when this appears. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Uh, um, and, um, uh, where, where else? Um, Oh, oh, I've got a new book out that actually came out a, a few months ago called From Beverly Hills to Hooterville, Exploring the Henningverse, 1962 to 1971. It is a 760-page book that covers in-depth the world um, of the Beverly Hillbillies, Petticoat Junction, Green Acres, all 666 episodes of those three shows in broadcast order. It's um, In one respect, it's a labor of love, in another respect, it's just me having a good time writing a book. Uh, and so uh, you can get that on Amazon. Just uh, Google. Uh, just Google. Just go on Amazon. You can Google it too. Why not? Uh, go on Amazon and just type in From Beverly Hills to Hooterville. You can get it on paperback. You can get it on Kindle. I will say um, the paperback is pretty gorgeous. Uh, the gentleman I had do the cover did a wonderful job. And there's something very, um, it's like three and a half pounds. So when you're done reading it, you set it down by the door to stop the door from moving, and it's great. It's a very versatile book. The Kindle version isn't as snappy, but if I find an error in the book, it gets updated in the Kindle version quicker than it does in the paperback version. So the Kindle version is up to date with um, errors. The paperback is a couple errors behind. Not that it's loaded with errors. I've only found two so far. But... um, but I think it's a fun book. Yeah, if you, if you love those three shows, you love the Henningverse, if you love my writing, you'll love the book. So so that's that's the main spots. And I think uh, recently around the... Um, I'm, I do a commentary on... I uh, did a commentary on a Blu-ray for a movie called Night Terrors with Valerie Harper. And I was on the commentary with the great Amanda Reyes, who I'm co-host with, along with Nate Johnson, of the Made for TV Mayhem show. Uh, which is a podcast, and then uh, Arrow Video just released 
a the DVD a Blu-ray set. I'm sorry for a Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, which is a late '80s slasher film. And the booklet in there, um, I wrote an essay that's sort of appreciation of the movie. So those are fun things. That's where I am. Check out my podcast. Read my book. Look at this. Do that. Email me uh, if you want. Or, or I'm at eSuperTrain1 on, on um, Twitter and uh, eventually SuperTrain or uh, Danny Slacks over on um, uh, Facebook. If you can find me, send me a message. I'll send you a picture of me. I look great. And thank you, Kristen, for having me on the show again. Thank you so much for joining me again, Dan, and mm. putting up with my Hawaii five bonus. I mean, it's your fault that I have this podcast to begin with. <laughs> That's right. So it's it's the least you can do, but it's always a joy to have you on and listen to your thoughts on on this show that I love so much. And I'm glad that you are also enjoying it. Yes. That makes me very, very happy. So thank you Yay. so much for joining me. Of course. And I can't wait to have you back on again. I'll be back, folks. I hope you like chocolate. Love it. Thanks. That is episode 32 of Buckham Dano. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so, so much to Dan for joining me once again to discuss a couple of episodes of the show. Please check out his podcasts, Eventually Super Train, Rockin' All Week With You, Happy Days Podcast, the minute-by-minute podcasts that he does covering various movies. They are all terrific. And do check out his books, 80s Action Movies on the Cheap, and from Beverly Hills to Hooterville, exploring the Hangverse, 1962 to 1971. They're big books and they're long titles, but both of them are worth it. They're so good. So do yourself a favor and check him out. And if you want to check me out online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookham Dano. You can also check me out at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. And if you want to check me out in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at Kiki Writes. So treat your employees so good that they won't want to rob you out of revenge later. And invest in your marriage so your spouse doesn't go on a killing spree. Until next time, aloha.